19 verses 1 to 8 and can be found on page 361 of the church Bibles. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all of the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his hand was a cake of baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled for forty days and forty nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. The second reading is taken from the Gospel of St. John, chapter 7, verses 37 to 39, and can be found on page 1072 of the Church Bibles. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. This is the word of the Lord. I must say, I feel a bit like a pop star with this. Or could you see it? Wonderful. And another thing I've always wanted to do is have some of this water here. Oh, and it is good. Right. Um, let's pray before I start. Loving God, please be with us now as we think about this uh, difficult subject of spiritual staleness. Please open our deaf ears, enlighten our dark minds, and melt our cold hearts. For your sake, amen. The trip began with excitement and the promise of adventure. We had packed our car made sure we had the right maps and what we thought should be plenty of food and set off, as, set off with speed. But our enthusiasm and zeal were fast evaporating. We'd been going for hours and the landscape had changed. We were still on the same road and we were sure it must go somewhere but its surface was rough and the hour was late. 
We were lost, tired, and not just a little bit irritable with one another. We had gone too far to turn back, and why should we? We were sure that there would be somewhere ahead where we could stop for rest and refreshment. And it was not only our stomachs that were empty. The fuel gauge needle was starting to dip into the red. We were starting to wonder whether we would ever complete our journey. most of us at times or even for much of the time our Christian lives are rather like that journey we may have started well but we've lost that initial enthusiasm we have as it were gone off the boil and our Christian lives are characterized more by routine than passion don't you wish that your Christian life was a series of exhilarating victories and mountaintop spiritual highs. I know that I do. But why should this be? Why should we get stale? We have, after all, been designed for a relationship with God, and our ultimate fulfillment is found in him. Earlier we were singing about something Jesus said. He said he'd come to give us life in all its fullness. And that those who are thirsty in our reading should come to him for the streams of living water. In Psalm 23, the psalmist speaks of the restoration of his soul and the goodness and mercy that follows him all the days of his life. Why doesn't that seem to be the reality in my daily experience? Shouldn't we expect to be constantly filled to overflowing with spiritual zest and vivacity? Why can't we know more of the experience of God's indwelling presence described here? I'm quoting. Jesus has come to take abode in my heart. It's not so much a habitation, an association, as a sort of fusion. Oh, new and blessed life. Life which becomes each day more luminous. There is a royal song of triumph in my heart because the Lord is there. I feel the pressure of his hand. I feel something else which fills me with serene joy. The Holy Spirit is not merely making a visit. It is no mere dazzling apparition from which one, from one moment to another, spread its wings and leave me in the night. It is a permanent habitation. Well, it's true. It's true that we're designed to find our fulfillment and satisfaction in God, the source of all goodness. But that's for another sermon. And Christians have the sure hope of heaven, eternity in God's, ser- in God's presence. Yet our experience, in the meantime, is often far from that. Staleness and spiritual dryness are commonplace for the Christian. Ask your friends after the service what their experience is. It would seem that the average Christian goes through cycles of both spiritual highs and lows, both mountaintops and valleys. And spiritual dryness is not just the experience of normal Christians like you and me. It's also the experience of the giants of faith. Take Mother Teresa, for example. Let me quote from her letters to her closest spiritual advisors. Where is my faith? Even deep down right in, there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. The silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and I do not see, listen and do not hear. I just have the joy of having nothing, not even the reality of the presence of God. But I accept not in my feelings, but with my will, the will of God, I accept his will. For Mother Teresa, Christ was everywhere except in her heart. 
And her love for Christ compelled her outwards where she found him, rather than inwards where she only knew his absence. Or take the hero of faith in our first reading, Elijah. And I love that picture. It doesn't come over especially well, but he looks completely shot. He has shattered that guy. He's just witnessed the amazing demonstration of God's power at that famous showdown with the 400 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. But then, then Elijah learns that Queen Jezebel intends to track him down and kill him. So in stark contrast with his courageous behavior in the previous chapter, Elijah flees. He's completely spent, spiritually exhausted. He's so drained that he considers his life to be effectively over and so asks God to take it from him. Spiritually stale is to somewhat understate how Elijah was feeling. He was empty. If he were a car, he would be the one that splotted to a halt in the middle of the road, having completely run out of fuel, rapidly causing a tailback of frustrated drivers behind him. But Elijah's journey was not over. God sends an angel to him and provides what he needs, the means to revive him. And Elijah has to take and eat what is offered in order to benefit from it. And in verse 8, he is strengthened sufficiently to be able to make a journey of 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. I think it is very useful to think of the Christian life as a long journey. John Bunyan picks up this idea, of course, in A Pilgrim's Progress. Israel's 40-year-long journeying in the wilderness between the redemption from Egypt and the crossing into the promised land has often been seen by Christians to be an allegory of the Christian life. This idea is picked up in numerous hymns, for example, Guide to Me, O Thou Great Redeemer, Pilgrim in This Barren Land, which... Um, I'm not sure whether we're seeing that later, but we, we sing it regularly. I'd like to spend the rest, of the, time of, uh, the rest of our time together thinking a bit about the Christian life as a long journey. And hopefully this will shed some light on the, on the problem of spiritual staleness. The Apostle Paul frequently speaks of our Christian lives as a race and of the need for endurance and training. Endurance is a characteristic mark of Christians in the New Testament. And I think if we think in these terms, the terms of a long journey, we can reframe our problem. How can we be fit for the journey ahead? What do we need to do or, or to be, to be equipped for the race or journey marked out before us? So that we can not only complete it faithfully, but thrive along the way. If the Christian life is a spiritual endurance event, how can we be spiritually fit and healthy rather than being spiritually drained and exhausted? How can we be spiritually filled up and invigorated? So what's the answer? Well, I don't think we should think in terms of any single technique or program or a guru who claims success. There isn't a single product that we all need to restore our spiritual freshness. Visual joke. And I don't believe that by merely willing ourselves to be like some heroic figure, that will, that will work. As if by just trying to squeeze it out of ourselves, we're going to be suddenly passionate. Rather like trying to squeeze water out of a completely dry sponge. If it's not there, it won't come. 
And likewise, I don't think there is a spiritual equivalent to a performance-enhancing drug, a guaranteed quick fix. Though God may at times provide a spiritual pick-me-up or a shot in the arm, I don't believe that this sort of thing is the main way that he provides for us. To complete a marathon race, you clearly need to be physically fit and healthy. Now, there are a number of people amongst us this morning who have run marathons. And I'm sure, if you're one of them, um, you'll know, otherwise ask, but they'll tell you that they didn't get up just one morning and think, hmm, I think I'll run a marathon. And off they went. No, they needed to train for months to get into condition, deciding what was needed in terms of exercise, diet, rest, and stick to it. To run the race that is the spiritual life, we need to be spiritually fit and healthy. And our spiritual training program, which you might prefer to call discipleship or following Jesus, gets us into the right condition. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, do you, do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. But before we look at the different elements of our spiritual training program, what I'd like to call the spiritual disciplines, the God-given means to get and remain spiritually fit, a quick word about balance. To be physically healthy, we need to consider not just one of, but all the different elements. It's no good to only sleep or to exercise but not to eat. I mean, that's obvious. If we overdo any one at the expense of the other, we ultimately end up unhealthy and unfit. Eat and don't exercise and you end up obese. Exercise without a good diet and we're emaciated. Exercise well and eat a good diet but fail to get any rest and we become exhausted. We mustn't just think about the individual parts. We need to consider the whole picture and what must comprise good patterns of sleep, enough of the right type of exercise and a diet with the right mix of nutrients, calories, fiber, etc. One of the keys to health is balance. And so it is, I believe, with the spiritual disciplines and spiritual health. I think with just a little reflection, most of us will realize that our spiritual lives are rather lopsided and unbalanced. We each have strengths and weaknesses, tendencies and preferences. Some of us will tend to be more right brain or left brain dominant, some more active or passive. Others prefer noise or quiet. Some of us would be more like Martha or Mary. And as we now turn, just to have a very brief thumbnail sketch of these five areas, could I invite you with me to do what you might think of as a spiritual inventory or a stock take? or perhaps the spiritual equivalent to a Myers-Briggs assessment to identify areas that we need to develop. And if you identify an area in which you feel particularly weak, could I invite you on the way out to pick up one of these sheets? I know this is a bit unusual, and it's also very, very small, but um, you can take it home with a magnifying glass. And this is full of suggestions for each of the areas and how we might grow in them. And so to the five spiritual disciplines. 
At various characteristic times in history, Christians have awakened to the benefit of one or other of these traditions or disciplines. And each of these is a God-given means by which we are refueled and equipped. Our minds are transformed and our spiritual muscles strengthened and flexed. It'll be obvious to you that these are not distinct disciplines and they're clearly not independent of one another, but I think it's useful to think in terms of these five broad areas. Firstly, prayer. Jesus is, of course, our model in all the spiritual disciplines and in his earthly life, Jesus' devotion to and intimacy with God was clear in his prayer life. He took time to spend in communion with God to seek God's will and gain strength for his mission. A rediscovery of the contemplative life had a number of expressions through history, but a notable example was the monasteries in the 4th century, in which the importance of solitude, meditation and prayer were recognised. A significant figure in this was St. Augustine. If we feel we are weak in this area, there are many ways we can develop our prayer lives. For example, we might want to explore Ignatian spirituality, or perhaps go for a prayer walk with a friend. Secondly, holiness. The virtuous life should be something that all Christians aspire to. Christ himself battled with Satan in the desert, choosing to love and trust God and obey his commandments, which after all are given for our own good. And as we grow in holiness, we have a greater ability to obey God's commandments. And then we can know the peace and freedom from the oppressive domination of sin in our lives. The Methodist movement led by John Wesley in the early 18th century, emphasized the dangers of moral laxity and sinful habits. There are numerous ways, of course, that we can seek moral virtue, not least by asking God to purify our hearts, to enable us to surrender control to him. Perhaps we could do that during a 24-hour fast. Consider doing that. Or maybe we could focus on the taming of our tongues, praying maybe one morning that we'll be able to go the whole day without saying anything negative at all, but putting everything in a positive way. Third point, third tradition or discipline, is action. Of course, it's beholden on all Christians to have compassion towards and care for those in needs. And those in need. Many have found that true happiness comes from helping others. And a desire to do this should flow from our relationship with God. One example of a social justice movement is that in the 12th century in which St. Francis of Assisi and his friends abandoned their former comfortable lives to care for the sick, the poor and the lame in the Italian countryside. We can be involved in social justice and compassionate care by, for example, writing an encouraging letter or maybe taking up the opportunity presented to us this morning, being involved with the food bank. Fourthly, word. Jesus immersed himself in the Hebrew Bible and emphasized the importance of both hearing and doing the word, including preaching to the lost. The written word of God is a direct revelation of God's wisdom, love and truth, and it's the foundation of our faith. Scripture equips us for every good work, and it's a light for our path. The evangelical movement of the 15th and 16th century emphasized the word-centered life and the importance of everyone having access to biblical truth through the Bible itself or through preaching. Martin Luther was, of course, a leading light in this. There are many ways that we can engage more in the Bible, for example, by memorizing a verse and just repeating it to ourselves throughout the day. 
or perhaps by reading out loud one of the shorter biblical books and imagining what the earliest audience must have thought when they first heard it. Fifthly and finally, the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, we could not live the Christian life at all. The Holy Spirit is God at work in the Christian. He provides a comforting presence, wisdom and strength, conviction of sin and the means to overcome it, growing in us the fruits of the Spirit. And he also empowers our Christian ministry to one another and to the world. He leads us into truth and guides and motivates, giving us words we need to share our faith. The Quakers, founded by George Fox in the 17th century, were a charismatic movement that emphasized the spirit-empowered life, focusing on worship, evangelism, and social concern. We can engage with the work of the spirit by, for example, meditating on and seeking the fruits of the spirit in our lives, or by exploring the gifts of the spirit through prayer. Of course, I've only had time to do the briefest of thumbnail sketches for each of the five traditions and how these might contribute to our spiritual health. But if anyone would like to think further about any of those particular areas, as I say, um, you, might, you may or may not find the handout helpful, but even if there's just one good idea or not, I think it would have been worth it. I'd like to just conclude with a brief comment on something that will have occurred to some people here. The idea that spiritual disciplines sounds rather a lot like a works-based gospel. The idea that we are contributing to our salvation somehow. And how is this compatible with the gospel of grace? Well, I don't believe that this is the case. We must realize that all the spiritual disciplines are powered and driven by the Holy Spirit which is given to us as a gift. And as with the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37... The bones are only able to live because of the Spirit of God. And so while we have a part to play in our spiritual training, that's not to say it's up to us. God provides the means and we're invited to take what is offered, whether that be communion with God in prayer, listening to his voice and his word, sharing in his acts of compassion or allowing him to transform us deep down. In conclusion, for those of us whose spiritual get-up-and-go seems to have got up and gone, I want us to be assured that this is the normal Christian experience, even for such spiritual greats as Mother Teresa and Elijah, to have times of spiritual staleness and dryness. But just as God knew exactly what the helpless Elijah needed for the long journey ahead of him and sent an angel to provide it for him, so God knows what we need God knows what we need for our journey with all its trials and temptations along the way. And just as Elijah accepted what was offered, so we should take hold of what God has provided for us to make us fit for the journey. God provides our daily bread, fuel for the journey of life by means of the spiritual disciplines. Let us urge one another on to invest heavily in those disciplines we will surely reap the reward. Jesus said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Let us seek and drink deeply from those streams of living water that Jesus gives to all who believe in him. Amen.